Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so happy that you've joined me for this episode. Today, we are continuing this series. I think this is, mm, I don't know, maybe show seven in this particular series. Yes, it's show seven. And we are talking about solutions for common problems during play. And remember the reason that we are reviewing this information so in-depthly is because when we are working with late-talking toddlers, one of the very best things that we can do to help them learn to understand and use more words is to sit down and play with them one-on-one. And so when we have kids who can't do that for whatever reason, we need to figure out what's going on. What can we do to help them learn to interact with us in a more productive, more efficient and happier way so that it, again, leads to being able to help them with whatever their particular challenge happens to be with learning language. All right, so let's review just really, really quickly the model that we've been using for this series of shows Again, we've been talking about a particular problem, and today I'm so excited to talk about tantrums and meltdowns. And that sounds so funny for me to say I'm excited to talk about <laughs> tantrums and meltdowns because they, it's not very exciting in the middle of that, is it? Have you experienced that where you feel like either super, super frustrated on your own because you feel maybe a little bit helpless or maybe you're mad? that the kid is mad, or maybe you feel um, like, I, I know I should be doing something here, but I'm not quite sure, so that it kind of increases anxiety on your part with, especially if you're a therapist or a new parent, a new therapist, and you feel like, am I making this worse? Is what I'm doing actually contributing <laughs> to this child's ability to be so dysregulated at this particular point in time? So today we're looking at what a tantrum and a meltdown are, and there are some really important differences, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But this whole series, what we've done is we've taken a look at a particular problem like this, and we're we're really, really uh, doubling down on the philosophy that children don't really choose not to participate with us. Now, again, that's not saying that toddlers don't have really kind of temperamental days, that, they're, that they can't be fussy and like one thing one day or one thing the next. And that's just where they are at their point in emotional maturation. And, again, individual toddlers will have differences in their own regulatory states. Some kids are naturally more frustrated than others, especially our little friends with developmental differences. Their fuse is a lot shorter <laughs> than their little typically developing counterparts. So we need to kind of look at this as they're not just trying to push our buttons. They're not choosing not to play with us. We just have to set the stage so that that's more comfortable for them and that we are eliciting better participation. And remember what we've been doing through this series. We've taken this model with we're discussing the problem, so we're really defining it, what the particular problem looks like. And again, we'll be looking today at tantrums and meltdowns. We'll talk about similar or related situations because, as I've said, and over and over on this series of shows, sometimes a parent or a therapist, I'll ask a really specific question and say, does this child do this? And they say no. But then later I realize, yeah, he does. <laughs> the adult just didn't know what to call it. Or I, maybe I didn't explain myself well enough so that they didn't understand that that's what I was talking about. So sometimes taking a look at what a problem could also be called <laughs> is an important differentiation for us, especially as therapists. And again, let me say that I've said therapists a couple of times now. If this is your first time to listen to uh, one of my shows, if you're a parent, you may want to turn it off right now. And, you know, you may be thinking, oh, this is just for therapists. This isn't for me. This is for all of us who love and work with little ones who have difficulty learning how to communicate. And so, again, I try so hard to walk that line between providing enough clinical information for therapists so that you 
uh, sharpen your clinical skills and you just get better and better and better and better at treating a variety of children, not only now in your caseloads, but you know, you are building your own library of knowledge so that you can continue to expand your tricks <laughs> in your own little bag of tricks that we use every day as therapists. But this is also for parents. And you don't really care about all these other kids or all these other scenarios that, that we're talking about here. You just care about your kid, your own little late talker. But this show is, is I, again, I try to really spread the, the, and cover the whole gamut here from looking at individual children and individual moms and dads versus those of us who see lots and lots of little friends and work with all kinds of families and all kinds of kids. So um, I hope that kind of sets the stage here. Another thing that we're doing when we're looking at these individual problems is we're providing explanations for why a child is behaving this way. Because many times when a kid is not interacting with us or playing with us, we just go straight to stubborn. We just think, oh, this kid is just stubborn or he is mean-spirited, which is what a lady said to me yesterday. Ugh. And <laughs> I won't get into that, but, but let's, yeah, that could be a whole show on in and of itself. But a lot of times there's a better explanation. And when we understand why a child may be reacting and responding and behaving in a particular way, that leads us to try different things. And so when we, when we look beyond this kid is just a bad kid or this kid, like I said before, is just stubborn. I, got a, I read an email from a mom today. She said, I'm from Australia. I've read through your parent's guide to understanding speech-language development or speech-language delays, that, the free ebook that's on my website, whatever it's called. I forget the titles of things all the time. But she said, I'm reading through that. And I know that you say that kids don't, not talk or kids kids don't, aren't they don't choose to be nonverbal they don't decide you know not not talking isn't really due to them being stubborn or lazy or any of those other things and she said but I really think my little boy is being stubborn and here's why and she was talking about the inconsistencies some days he can say mama some days he won't say mama he said he signed more twice in one therapy session and then won't do it again or hasn't been able to do it again and mom really thinks about that as he's just choosing not to do it and guys let me just say that's not the case and I, I do a long soliloquy about can't versus won't in a lot of my courses and I've written about that if you've never heard me talk about that go to my website at teachmetotalk.com and type in can't versus won't and really look at that and and here's how this ties into this situation today Again, we're looking at play, and many, many times it's not that a, ch uh, a child won't play with us, it's that he can't play with us. And so we are looking at these explanations for why these behaviors are occurring. And remember, it's not the same reason for every child, even though a kid may be, like we're talking about today, having a tantrum or having a meltdown. Again, the driving force behind that, the real root cause of that could be as different for every kid, you know, as, as there are, uh, you know, any kind of difference in the world. And so we have to really, really remember that. And that's why we're talking about all these different explanations or what might be going on with a specific child. And we're also, even more importantly, looking at solutions. So what can you do? You know, what, what should you try if a kid looks like he's in the middle of a tantrum or a meltdown? What are some things that will provide relief, not only for the child, but for you? So let's get going with today's topic. And let me just say, if you want a written summary of this information, I'll just tell you all of the things that we're talking about today, or most of them, are pulled from the last chapter in my book, Teach Me to Play With You. It's one of the three therapy manuals that I've written. If you're a therapist, this is a fantastic reference for you to have so that you can, when you have a little uh, friend on your caseload who's having one of these particular problems and you're talking with the mom and dad about it or the teacher or the babysitter or the grandparent it's so helpful to be able to say you know this is what we did today this is what we've talked about for our last you know 45 minutes to an hour that I've been here with you and here's a written summary so you can look at this after I leave and all week long you can remember what we talked about or if you want to share this information with dad or with 
you know, if it's the sitter and mom's going to come home from work and she's going to say, how did therapy go today? And so you're giving that sitter something to share with mom so that they can communicate about what's really, really going on uh, with that child. If you're a parent, this information will really, really help you figure out specifically what's happening in your household (laughs) with your own child. And it gives real-life practical solutions. And remember, we talked about how play is, is how children learn everything. So when we have kids who don't play with us, it's really a, a kind of a challenge from the get-go. So I wanted to mention that book. I also want to be sure that if you're ordering that, don't forget to use your special coupon code just for podcast listeners. So if you will plug in the coupon code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, you'll save $10 off the book. So that's if you are frugal and love a good sale like I do, that's certainly something that I hope you'll take advantage of. All right, so back to tantrums and meltdowns. Now, for a long time, I really used these words interchangeably. And actually, in Teach Me to Play With You, which is, remember the book that I just talked about, I've called this particular problem tantrums and meltdowns and and really lumped them together. But here's the truth. They're really different kinds of problems. And, And if we don't look at this as it's a different problem, so we have to have a different approach, we may not be as effective as we can be in helping a child work through these. So let's just differentiate what and define what tantrums and sensory meltdowns are and remember they're not the same thing it can be super hard to tell the difference between them just by looking at a kid that's upset and so when you have a kid that's kicking and screaming on the floor or a kid that's kind of in a crying heap (laughs) or a kid who seems to be just totally shut down it's really really hard just by kind of coming in at that particular moment in time sort of after the fact to determine what's happened so we need to look at the differences between tantrums and meltdowns and and really look at what started first, what seemed to be the precipitating event so that we can learn how to help a kid manage them eventually. But at the beginning, because we're talking about children who are still in this earliest developmental period, we have to provide a lot of external support. And remember that this is even more important for our little guys with developmental differences versus their typically developing counterparts. Remember, if they're a late talker, thing has happened. Uh, I, I, I want to say neurologically, but that scares a lot of parents because they automatically start to think about terms like brain damage or um, they'll look at it like it a disease or something like that. I'm not really talking about that. I'm just saying that their little systems are wired differently from the get-go. And just like all of us have individual temperament and personality differences, we can kind of think about development in the same way too. We look at the kind of the broad range of where typically developing toddlers fall. And again, there's a wide, wide variety there. But remember, there can be just little, little twists and turns which happen when our little friends, uh, again, do display those developmental differences. And so it's not just that they are different in their ability and and their timing of when they start to learn language. They have other differences too. And that's really sort of the, the beginning part when we start to talk about and think about and tease out, is this kid falling apart because this is a tantrum or is he responding this way because it's a true sensory meltdown so let's differentiate and sort out what each of these terms really really mean and let me just share a fantastic website that I have just recently discovered in the last oh gosh three or four months it's called understood.org I believe the folks that that have founded this website one is a special educator And then the other person is an occupational therapist, and I apologize that I don't have their names to reference, but it's fantastic. Now, really, this site is geared toward children who are older than our little friends that we're talking about here in uh, early intervention and birth to three programs. So really more for the older preschooler and school-age child, but the information is just fantastic. 
particularly with how they are describing and defining tantrums versus meltdowns. So let's talk about this. Now, a tantrum, what is a tantrum? A tantrum is an outburst that happens when a kid wants something or needs something that he can't have. And remember, our friends with developmental differences are really more prone to tantrums because we've already talked about their little systems are just wired differently. So what, what might that really look like? It might mean that they don't pay attention as well as a kid who's not having those issues. It might mean that they are, as we've talked about before, wild. <laughs> they're busy. They're impulsive. They're a little bit hyperactive. So those can certainly... Uh, cause a child like that to become angry faster and more easily or more frustrated. So let's say he's playing with his beloved Thomas the Trains and he can't get the magnets to hook in the right way. You know, if you've played with that particular train set, one, and you know in general how magnets work, uh, one side attracts and or sticks together and the other side repels or pulls apart and let's say that a kid is trying and trying and trying to get those trains together and he's done it let's say a little friend that we're thinking about and working with might have tried that two or three times and he gets just completely set off by that and he (laughs) hurls the trains across the room you know he's he's totally lost it just in that little bit you know trial and error for him is extremely excruciating he can't get past those two or three trials whereas a typically developing toddler has learned hey if this didn't work I can try something else I can sit here and and just switch around and and do something different to see if I'll get a different outcome a typically developing toddler might think oh I can't do this but my mama can and go find mom who's in the kitchen and it's not this kind of unexpected very emotional response that we see when a child again who has developmental differences might display other things that we might see remember with a tantrum uh, is that a kid can't get something he wants or needs so let's just say that you've set a limit something like uh, you know no candy in the 10 minutes before dinner (laughs) and he is really mad because he wants the candy and he he uh, starts whatever his little routine might be, whether he's screaming or crying or kicking or destroying the living room, you know, whatever his particular little vent happens to be, you can identify that as, oh, okay, the cause here is known. It's that I've said no to him. I've not wanted to let him do something that he wants to do. Or let's say that he wants to kick the dog or pull the cat's tail (laughs) and you're not going to let him abuse your pet. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here when we are looking at what a tantrum is. He wants something that you are not allowing him to do. And a lot of times with tantrums, even with toddlers, your attention to this and your your solution, the solution for them is you. The solution for them is you are going to yield to their will. And so when when this kind of thing is happening, they want the attention. They're not over in the corner doing this themselves. Or if they are, they're looking to see, hey, am I getting a reaction? Hey, she's not really paying attention to me, but what if I amp it up? You know, I've started this little outburst here as a level five, but I'm not getting any, my mom is still washing dishes or this therapist is still trying to make me do this. Let me amp this up a little bit and see if I can get her to pay attention to me or let's say that you're trying to elicit some kind of behavior from that child that he he doesn't for whatever reason is not able to give you at that moment your attention again is the key there and so the behavior tends to stop when he gets what he wants so that's kind of a key that lets us know what's really happening here is this a tantrum is this an angry or that frustrated outburst or is this a little bit more serious with a meltdown? Now, what's a meltdown? A meltdown is really a reaction to feeling overwhelmed. And so a kid might still display some of those same behaviors. He might still be crying or yelling or lashing out at you physically, or he could be doing the things that we've talked a lot about recently on shows with the fight, flight, or freeze reactions. And remember when a kid is in flight, what does that look like? 
He's getting the heck out of there. <laughs> He's running away from you. He's avoiding, right? We know what fight looks like, right? When he's fighting, he's he's hitting you. He's maybe throwing things. He's doing something that's physically aggressive. And certainly the freeze part of that is shutting down or withdrawing. Those kinds of behaviors are really related to a sensory meltdown. Now, remember when a kid has a meltdown, He's processing so much incoming information that his little system feels completely overloaded. And a lot of times, again, this is the big key that lets you know whether this is a tantrum or a meltdown. Tantrums really are, at the beginning initially, in a child's control. He's kind of initiated that purposefully, remember, because he can't get what he wants or needs. But meltdowns aren't really like that. They're a little bit more involuntary or a little bit uh, a little bit more out of the kid's control, meaning that just all of this information is coming in and he just gets completely overwhelmed or overstimulated. And so that, and, and again, it could just be, um, it, it could sort of look like a tantrum, but it's more intense. It, and a lot of times with sensory meltdowns, you could sort of see it building but a lot of times it just seems like it's coming out of nowhere. Just it's We're not really sure what happened. With a tantrum, we can identify, hey, I know what this kid wants or I know what he's reacting to. But many, many times with a sensory meltdown, we have no idea why it started or how it happened or what in the world is causing it to continue. And remember, a lot of times, because we're calling this a sensory meltdown, and we've said this is incoming information. There's just too much sensory information uh, coming into a child's little system for him to be able to process. So let's say, let's take some examples. Let's say that a kid is at preschool and the fire alarm goes off. And that really, really freaks him out because that's a big auditory surprise. He did not expect that loud noise. And he doesn't really know what it is or understand what's about to happen next. And then let's say that this is not a drill. Let's say that this is real. And all of a sudden, the teacher in the room is showing some panic, too, or a little bit anyway, like and hustling the children and you know, saying, okay, come on, guys, we're all going to line up now. And, and the child can sense that this was unexpected and that this teacher is not completely in control and that just amps up that child's own reactions not only is he hearing this loud scary noise but he's also sensing that all is not well as far as the teacher's regulatory state so it's just all kind of coming in at once and so they feel really really overwhelmed this might also happen um, let's just say in the course of treating a kid in therapy let's say that you have been working with them and that you've put some applied what you think is gentle pressure <laughs> when you are really really requiring them to say a word and let's just say that you've prompted the word 32 times and the kid knows on some level hey i cannot say what she's wanting me to say and so you might think okay this is a tantrum because he really wants this particular toy or wants another turn or wants whatever but it could really be beyond that it could have, have crossed over from that tantrum to that sensory meltdown phase because he really really knows that he can't do it and just your continual insistence that he do it has just become overwhelming and so he becomes really really flooded and then he can't do what you've asked him to do. So think about those sort of things. Now at understood.org, let me give you the examples that they've given for sensory meltdown. And again, remember that that site is tailored to children who are older than the population that we're talking about here. But there's some good examples. And again, I think you can take this and really, really pull it back, but it'll help you understand sort of the differences here. So the examples that they've given for a sensory meltdown are the commotion of an amusement park. And so think about that. Think about a child who may be sensitive to sounds already, who may need things to be calmer. And you know how just active and and all the in, all the all of the visual input that a child experiences at an amusement park. And then he's had a lot of movement too because he's been on this ride that he didn't expect to spin or to go a little bit faster than he anticipated. So. 
think about that, and I like your word there, the commotion. Think about how he feels and how that might be emotionally overwhelming for that child just to process all of that, all of those physical sensations that are coming in. Um, they also give another example that it could be a reaction for an older child to having too many things to think about. So a back-to-school shopping trip might trigger a tantrum that turns into a meltdown because it's just too much. Let's say that mom is, is trying on, you know, it's the fifth or sixth outfit that she is trying to wrangle <laughs> over that wiggly child who's in the dressing room. And in the beginning, he's just a little bit uncomfortable. He wants to stop. And so he's done some initial um, given some initial signs of resistance. Maybe he started to whine or cry a little bit, or maybe he's gone to the door, or maybe he's fought mom a little bit as she's tried to put the shirt on, or again, you know, the seventh or eighth shirt. And let's say that mom is persistent because it's her only day off and we've got to get this done today. And I don't, I don't care, you know, if, if you want to do this or not, we've just got to get through it. And so <laughs> she's pushing through and then it eventually becomes out of control for that child. There's just no way that uh, he can continue that activity without really, really going into that uh, fight, flight, or freeze reaction or um, any other kind of adverse response that we might see with the child. So those are the real differences between a sensory meltdown and a tantrum, and I think it's so important to tease those out and really, really think about what's going on. And let's just talk about one other thing that makes this so difficult for us as we're dealing with late talkers. Most of the time, tantrums and meltdowns both occur because kids can't really express what it is that they want or need. They can't tell you what will make them feel better. They can't tell you what's caused this. And so when we overlay that communication problem on top of them not getting to do something or getting something that they want or need and in the case of tantrums and with meltdowns when we put that on top of being having that physical and emotional overload no wonder children seem to fall apart and no wonder this becomes a really tense out of control situation because they first of all can't tell you what it is that they want in the first place and they're not telling you what it is that would make them eventually feel better so let's talk about now some possible explanations we've sort of already done this but i want to be really really consistent in our methodology that we've been using to describe these problems over the last several shows remember we talked about that our little friends and i've already used the term have a, some of our little friends with language delays have a shorter fuse because they're just wired differently and certainly that's a possible explanation and remember too that all children all toddlers are more susceptible to tantrums and meltdowns because of that maturity factor. And the other thing that we talked about a lot in last week's show is that children are just in this really interesting developmental period where they're trying really, really hard to separate and really learn, I am separate from my mom. I am separate from my dad. I have powers that are beyond them. I can control what happens in my little part of this world and I don't always have to depend on them, and I, don't, I have to let them know what's happening here. So there's a real struggle, again, in that whole maturational process in toddlerhood in general. You know, they want, they want to run away and be close to you and protected by you at the same time. So just imagine how that yin and yang might feel to a toddler who doesn't really know how to express those emotions or deal with those emotions. So that certainly is a factor. A lot of times particularly meltdowns, and even to a degree less intense versions of that occur when children are, have well, let's just say when they have a physical need that's unmet. So if a kid is thirsty, if he's hungry, if he's sick, if he's gotten hurt, if there's a wet or dirty diaper that you have not gotten right on to change, particularly if he has some tactile issues and he doesn't, he hasn't, accommodated to how a wet diaper might feel and that sets him off more easily than a typically developing toddler again those kids are more likely to have meltdowns and and don't you feel that way too are you at your very best when you are really really hungry probably not I know that I'm not I know a lot of us are really troopers and can handle it when we have you know a headache or a little muscle cramp or we're just 
overtired from the day before. And again, I give those examples because as an adult, I think those are things are, that are really, really easy to relate to. And so on those days when you are a little bit off already, doesn't, isn't it easier to make you more upset? Don't you have a shorter temper and become annoyed a little easier or a little more frustrated? Or maybe if you are super emotional and you're a crier, maybe you cry more on those days. And so certainly toddlers who can't communicate how they're feeling or what they need are even more prone to those kinds of things when there's a physical need that's unmet. And we've already talked about, again, the difference in frustration tolerance levels, and a lot of times that is really related to temperament or personality. So if you are a whole family of hotheads, <laughs> if every single one of you is passionate in your family, if you, you know, if it's like my family, you know, I'm, I have a pretty passionate kind of, you know, dominant personality and certainly, oh, I'm married to somebody just like me in that regard. And so guess what? We have three children that are just like that. And thank goodness they're all adults and everybody's learned to mediate that a little bit. But when you have those inborn temperament and personality differences, that certainly is a factor in that. You know, we all kind of come into this world with, you know, are we, you know, what is calm uh, for one kid is, is may not necessarily mean calm for another child or, or kind of the, the starting point for another child. So think about that too. There are going to be some natural differences and that frustration tolerance uh, is going to be a different level for a different kid. And so when you have a kid that's more easily set off, you'll just have a little bit more fireworks to deal with on a daily basis. That That's just who he is. And so at, at some point we have to consider that and we don't have to think about a kid being manipulative or you can certainly think he's overreactive but just be a little bit more empathetic with that's how he came into this world that's just how the system is now remember too we've been talking a lot about sensory processing differences and so some kids are just uh have really different um responses to any kind of external uh, force that's happening. So if it's too noisy, they're naturally going to fall apart a little bit. If they're if they're sens if they're uh, real sensitive to that, some kids uh, are really really sensitive to being outside. It might feel you know too bright, too windy, too hot, too cold, too anything. And so because that little there's just such a small range for them that would mean regulated or balanced. Anytime you tip it either way you're going to see a reaction. So think about those things as possible explanations. So we've talked a lot about what tantrums and meltdowns are and those differences, and we've talked about these possible explanations. Let's get on to the most important part of this is what in the world do we do about this? How can we address it? How can we respond? And remember, because tantrums and meltdowns are triggered by different things, our responses are going to be uh, different for that as well. So let's talk about our solutions. And I like how understood.org worded this. They have ways to tame a tantrum. Don't you like that? <laughs> so let's think about some things that we can do. First of all, and uh, let me just say that some of these strategies are going to be uh, from understood.org, and I'll try to differentiate that. And some of these are the ones that are listed in uh, Teach Me to Play With You, which is what this whole series is, is based on. And let me, for either, either cause here, a tantrum or a meltdown, I love to talk about the advice that Dr. Stanley Greenspan gives for us when we are thinking about a child who's dysregulated for any reason. And especially when we're in a, a child who's in a full-blown meltdown, his advice is so prolific in this, and he gives lots and lots of things that you can do, but he says your bottom line is to remember that a child really doesn't hear you or understand you. And when he looks like he's out of control, it's because he is out of control. And so what does this mean? It means no teaching, no learning, no anything beyond let me satisfy what's going on with this kid's 
physical and emotional response here can occur until we help that child calm down. And lots and lots of parents and therapists make this mistake. They think, well, I'm just going to have to help him push through. He's got to learn how to deal with this. And that's true, but when we are talking about a child who is a toddler and a child who has a developmental delay, you're just pretty much doomed at that point if you think I'm going to be able to push through and and get a child to be compliant or do what I need him to do. Because at this point, remember, he can't. He, he really is. You're sort of placing him and you in an impossible situation. So what do you do? You have to get them in a more regulated spot where they are calmer and where that intense frustration and intense emotional reaction is not occurring anymore. You have to get that kid back to baseline so that he can be able to hear you and understand you. And kids will, over time, learn to remain calm when these outside stressors happen, but not when they're two and not when they can't really communicate with you. And so, again, some of you as therapists may be kind of balking at that advice and you may be thinking, oh, you know, well, then what are we supposed to do? She's pretty much saying give it up, just cater to this kid and do whatever he needs to calm down. And I'm just not really like that. I really need to teach this kid. And I'm just here to say that I don't think that works. (laughs) You know, my uh, 25-year career has taught me that, when, again, when a kid really looks like he can't hold it together, It's because he can't. So we have to meet him where he is and figure out what can I do in this situation to help him regain some self-control. And that's hard. And it does have to be, you know, self-control is really an internal process. And, And remember how infants come into this world They really can't do anything for themselves. Everything has to be really externally guided until they grow and mature. And a lot of our little friends, even as toddlers, are still kind of stuck in that emotional developmental period where they really don't have anything that's really under their volitional or their their ability to control with themselves. A lot of these a lot of this support really, really has to be external. So we have to think about uh, again, I said that phrase meeting them where they are. We've got to figure out. What is it that he needs, and how can I give that to him? Now, does that mean that you give in to every little situation? You know, it's a tantrum. They've decided, let's say a kid has decided, I really want to pull the curtains in the living room down. Are you going to let him pull the curtains in the living room down (laughs) to meet his need? Absolutely not. But you're recognizing, hey, he's out of control. He wants to do something that I haven't wanted him to do. You know, I can't let him pull the curtains down. You know, I mean, I mean, that's just common sense. But at the same time, what is he really looking for here? He's looking for something he can control. He's looking for something that he can do. So that's what we have to think about. What can I let this child do that will help him regain the sense of control? And let me just say, that's why redirection works so well. And remember in the past couple of shows, I believe that we've talked about what redirection is. Redirection is just that you're going to give a child something that he can do that's an alternative to what um, he wants to do. So that if a kid, let's say that he wants to throw things off the table in the dining room and you've said no throwing, you know, or we don't throw plates or whatever it is that you say, but you know that he wants that action. So one way to redirect him would be moving him to a different location and then giving him things that he can throw or things that he can manipulate. Distraction also is a really valuable strategy in this situation as well. And remember, distraction is different than that in that it doesn't have to be related to what he's trying to do. It's just getting him to focus his attention on something else. Let's go back to the scenario where he's wanting to pull the curtains down in the living room. You've told him no. He's starting to lose it because he really, really has decided, yes, I want to do that. But then you bring out something else that he might want even more than that. You know, and I always think about, you know, that joke where we talk about with ADD or ADHD where we say the way that we, you know, we are, that we can kind of tell that we are easily distracted is somebody says, look, shiny. <laughs> and then we immediately divert our attention away from what it is that we were paying attention to in the first place. That's how distraction works for toddlers too. We're giving them something else that, that will help them focus on something that is okay for them to do. And distraction is a beautiful, beautiful tool. And we should use that 
as therapists and as parents. And don't feel badly about that. Don't feel like, gosh, I'm missing a real learning opportunity here. I have to train my child. I have to discipline this child. Not when they're in this developmental phase and certainly not when a kid has an overly low frustration tolerance level. You're not that you're just setting yourself up for challenge after challenge after challenge and power struggle after power struggle after power power struggle all day with a kid like that. So you really do have to use some of these these techniques. And again, remember we're talking about toddlers here. You're not talking about a kid who's six or ten or twelve. You'll get to that. You'll get to those opportunities to really help them learn how to grow and mature and, and be develop self-control and all of that. But it's later. It's not in this developmental period. So that's what I really, really want you to think about. Now, another strategy here is um, that I talked about a little bit when we were saying in the possible explanations category, when a kid has a physical need, and again, that might start as a tantrum but then sort of evolve into a sensory meltdown because they just can't handle that physical sensation that they're feeling, address it. Um, let me give you an example. A lot, and sometimes this. And well, let me just say, <laughs> this example might seem like I am uh, going off on parents a little bit, or am being negative about a particular parent or whatever. And I'm really, really not. I'm just saying we've got to be super, super sensitive to this. And so, in my career, you know, I've done. Until these last few years, I was a birth to three uh, speech language pathologist and really exclusively saw children in their home. And so, you know, I would get to a home and I can think of lots and lots of times over the years where I would get there and I would realize this kid is too sick for me to be here and mom wouldn't have told me. And some, she didn't cancel or reschedule the appointment. And I would... Sometimes that's because mom didn't know, and that's okay. All of us are really, really <laughs> busy, and sometimes we don't really know how sick a kid is, or we think, oh, this is just a little runny nose, and then by the time, you know, maybe I would have gotten there, you know, he has a 102-degree fever, and on one hand, as a therapist, you may think, how did this mom not know? How did she let me come when this kid is obviously so, so sick? She should be at the pediatrician right now and not have let me come today you know but I get that sometimes we just don't know sometimes kids go from being completely well to you know really 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 ill within the course of an hour or so and mom just didn't know and so sometimes you know that's happened sometimes oh gosh and this has happened more times than I can even count is mom would say I knew he was sick but this therapy is so important to us, and this is working so well, and I know that you are so busy, and if I canceled on you, I won't see you again for another week or two. And so they would let me come anyway, thinking that it won't matter. We'll, we're just going to push through. We're just, he's just, he'll, it's okay. He'll be okay. And I just want to say to that, that doesn't make sense because the kid is not in a place where he is really ready to learn. You can't really... When you're sick like that, especially when you're a toddler, you can't really focus on anything new or focus on another person. All of your focus is internally directed because you feel so darn bad. So let's kind of think about that with kids too. Is we have to address their physical needs. And so it may not even be something as uh, serious or as easily identifiable as an illness. It could just be that, you know, it's been three or four hours since he's eaten anything, so he's just hungry. And so it looks like to a parent, oh, he's just a little bit fussy. We're going to push through or, you know, I'm going, I really need him to play with me right now. This is the only time that we can work on this speech therapy stuff today. But then you realize, you know, gosh, he, it's four o'clock and he hasn't put a bite in his mouth since noon. Let's feed him first. Let's address those physical needs so that we can um, get a kid in the best possible state to be able to interact and learn from us. So that certainly is um, something that we need to really continue, uh, make sure that we're doing and continuing. Uh, remember, let's go back to the understand.org strategies for ways to tame a tantrum, especially when children are older. We can look at talking them through what's happening so that we are giving really, really good explanations for um, 
whatever they're feeling. And so the example here that they've given is, you know, I know that you're angry with me because I asked you to turn off the video game. I get mad too when I have to stop doing something fun. So you're kind of meeting that child where they are emotionally. Here's the problem with this with, with late talkers and with children who have language delays. Sometimes we try to explain too much. We try to use too many words. We get so lengthy in our explanations of what the kid can and can't do or why he's why we've set a rule or something and the child just glazes over or becomes even madder and madder and madder because we are actually overstimulating them with too much language here. So even though that's a great strategy talk the situation through still especially with a toddler keep your words short and sweet we're going to remain pretty firm especially if this is a tantrum and a kid just is, is want something he can't have but we're going to give loving and brief directions and we'll give that redirection when we can so let's let's go back to that that uh, example that we were using earlier let's say it's 10 minutes before dinner he saw a bag of skittles on the counter he really wants that you're trying, he's about to lose it, it would be better at that point to say, just really, really short and sweet, you know, no candy, how about grapes? Or no candy, and then offer the sippy cup or whatever. And we don't have to go into, I know that you're hungry, darling, but you have to really, really wait because dinner's about to be ready in 10 minutes, but I want it to be hot when Daddy comes home, so we've really got to wait for Daddy to get here because we can't really eat anything until, until then. Do you see how that would overstimulate a kid and how that would just add to the chaos <laughs> that's happening in, in the midst of that tantrum that just keeps evolving and evolving and evolving? And again, remember we said that kids kind of have a tipping point too, and so we tip them over into that meltdown range where they really can't control what's happening to them emotionally anymore or even sometimes physically. And so we have to be super careful with our words here and really, really, again, keep those explanations and talking that through. Keep that really, really short and sweet. All right, let's talk about uh, ignoring because a lot of times we'll get advice to ignore what's going on with the child. And sometimes that is the most reasonable or rational thing that you may want to do as a parent or as a therapist. You know, I'm just going to ignore what's happening here and hopefully it's going to go on, uh, go away on its own. And for some kids it will. For some kids, um, again, just not giving them that attention. They learn that um, their behavior really controls whether we respond to them or not. But, guys, I'm just going to tell you, in some cases, it doesn't. And so we we ignore them or we start to overgeneralize when that ignoring behavior would be most effective. And so we'll ignore a kid who's really in the middle of a sensory meltdown, meaning that he's got that extreme emotional overload and he really can't do anything about it. And so we're just trying to ignore it. So what happens? That might turn into a 30-minute or 45-minute or no joke. I've seen some families whose children are out of control like that for two or three hours. And a lot of times it, it's we could have maybe done something in the beginning to prevent that, but ignoring it really, really made it worse. So I want to caution you with that strategy. And, again, that may work a lot better when a kid is – four and six and 17 <laughs> than it does when he's one or two or three. So be super careful about what you choose to ignore. And again, that's why I think uh, distraction and redirection that we just talked about work a little bit better in this kind of situation with the, the toddlers that we're dealing with um, because of that difference in how they are developing. And so instead of just ignoring um, that that behavior that they are persisting in, it's really better to provide an alternative for that. So I wanted to mention that because a lot of times I've seen new therapists really overuse, ignore, and then they're wondering, why won't this kid settle down? You know, I'm at the end of the hour, and my goodness, we didn't get anything done. If you had used a different approach in the beginning, you may have been able to salvage some of that session rather than uh, kind of going against the grain there and ignoring something that you should have really, really, really addressed. 
All right, let's, in this last few minutes, let me quickly look at this and make sure that I've mentioned all I want to talk to you about with uh, this really, really important topic. Let's talk about um, what do we do in kind of the amp up. We've said redirect. We've said distract. But I haven't mentioned this today, which is simplify. So if we are doing something, particularly in that therapeutic environment, and we notice that a kid is really, really, his behavior is escalating, and we are thinking, oh, no, here it comes. What can we do? I say this all the time, back up, back up, back up. So we're going to make whatever it is that we're doing easier for that child. So if the, if the toy is frustrating him because it's too hard, do it for him or switch activities all together so that what you're asking him to do isn't quite as complex. So it really is better to put something away and move on to something else rather than try to persist and work through it, particularly when we see those intense emotional reactions. And you'll just have to sort of analyze, you know, what is it that I've asked him to do? That's, what, what is it about this? Is that I've asked, I'm introducing this new toy that's really, really too hard for him and I'm asking him to talk? Is it that I've introduced this toy during play and it's really, really hard for him and I'm expecting him to share with his brother who's sitting here too? Um, just look, what is it about this that could be contributing to this kid's um, discontentedness? What is it that's making him a little bit frustrated? And again, you want to catch that as quickly as possible. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, on my closing point here is what do you do if you've let a kid kind of go over the edge or if you weren't able to see it or stop it or prevent it in the first place? And let me just say, I'm not acting like I never have a kid who gets to the meltdown phase with me. Please don't think that I'm saying that you can be so on and such a superstar all day long that you never have a kid who does this. And, you you know, every children is, you know, every child you see is angelic the whole time in your therapy sessions. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, all of us can have situations or certain children that, that are just so easily set off that they are in the throes of that extreme meltdown before you even know what's happened with their, you know, what's happened with them or, or what's happened with you and what's going on in that situation. What do you, what do, you do? Uh, keep the kids safe. So if he's screaming and throwing things, it really might feel like an emergency, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is. <laughs> and so you have to be in the position to think, what can I do to keep this kid safe? Is anybody going to get hurt? Am I going to get hurt? Is he going to get hurt? And really, really look at what you can do to keep everybody really, really safe in that situation. The other thing to do is make sure that you yourself are remaining calm. And again, if you're not a parent, if you are a therapist who doesn't have the experience of living with a baby and a toddler day in and day out, it can be scary when you were in the middle of an extreme emotional reaction from a child and you've never experienced that before. Let me just say, as a mom of three children who are now adults, and I have seen thousands and thousands of children in my uh, practice over the years, and especially when we were doing our group program, and even though I have a ton of experience in this situation, it still makes my heart beat fast when a kid is kind of losing it. I mean, there are sessions that I, I think, you know, oh, I'm sweaty. <laughs> and it's not because I had so much physical activity. It's because I got really scared or uh, anxious about what a child is doing. So remember to kind of keep yourself calm and be really, really as, uh, in control of yourself, as you can feel in this situation. Uh, last month when I spoke at the Kentucky Speech and Hearing Association uh, meeting, their annual conference, I had a lady who came up to me at the end and she said, uh, she was sharing with me her new job and she said, I, I do early intervention on the side, but I've just taken a new position in a new school where kids are in middle school and they're on the spectrum and it's a self-contained classroom and I'm serving uh, this classroom and it's a new population for me. And she said, I don't know how to say this in any other way other than 
I'm scared. <laughs> you know, I've never dealt with kids this big before. I could really get hurt in this situation. And so, you know, we were talking about some things that she could do and some additional resources that she could uh, possibly explore. And, again, that's a completely different population than I've ever worked with. You know, when you get to be five or six, you were way too old for Miss Laura. <laughs> I see babies. I see toddlers. And so I could certainly identify with that feeling of her feeling out of control when she doesn't know what to do for a kid. And so that can certainly happen even when you've had years and years of experience or even when, you know, it's a toddler or a three-year-old who's really, really dysregulated. So remember to kind of do everything you can to keep yourself as calm as, as you need to be. We also need to project that to children. Remember before when I gave that example of the kid who would be really out of control when he and really um, respond with that, extreme reaction when he would hear a fire alarm in preschool and then remember I said and it kind of amps up even more if he senses that his teacher a little bit scared and so we have to be reassuring with children and you can reassure them with whatever it takes it might be that you just have a really confident calm tone of voice it could be that you need to offer some physical comfort that a kid really does respond well to being hugged or um, held or rocked or anything like that. Now, some kids, remember we said uh, kids are different, and so some kids, that would completely be the wrong approach. Let's say they're really tactile defensive, and they really don't respond well to someone hugging and consoling them. You may be able to relate to that as an adult. Are there times that you would respond well to someone offering you physical comfort, and then there are times when that would just really tick you off. If somebody tried to hold you or comfort you or wanted you to be physically close to them, you just needed your space. So know what you're dealing with with the child and and really um, tailor your approaches to that particular child's needs at that particular time. And again, it could be that a kid, instead of being close to you, needs a little bit of space. So you might have to move to a quieter place. Um, a lot of times in preschool classrooms now, there are spaces like little tents or bean bags where children can go and chill out and relax and get calmer kind of on their own. Uh, let's say, and I think this is at the uh, this example was at understood.org, there are times when a child, um, you may be, let's say, in a really public situation. Let's say that you're at just a really active super exciting birthday party, but it just becomes too much and you can see the signs of that impending meltdown about to occur. You know, what do you do? You leave. You take a kid out of that situation. You go sit in the car for 10 minutes. You may just have to go home, go home. But sometimes it's just taking that, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. You may have to take the child into the restroom or really kind of over in a corner by yourself. If you're a therapist, and this has happened to me because I'm pretty high energy most of the time and really, you know, want to play, 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 play. And then before I realize it, gosh, this kid has gone over the edge and I've done it. So what do you do? You just bring it back down to a quieter place. You know, think about that as de-escalating. And so try to offer some of those calming, soothing things. A lot of times what I'll do, especially if this is, um, I'll do this whether it's a meltdown or a tantrum, but when a kid, I sense that they're about to lose it, and I've been just, woohoo, you know, in the throngs of playing really, really fun, I just get really, really quiet. And you may still talk to a child, but you might whisper. And if you've been up just kind of playing a really rowdy game, you bring that physical activity level down. And, again, just think, what can I do to de-escalate this situation? It might be that you can't hold the kid physically in your lap, that that too dysregulating for him, but you may be able to hold his hands. You may be able to pull him in closer to you, but without really, really holding him. So look at that and think, you know, what is it that I can do? I have one little girl 
years and years ago, and she's actually a little girl that's on Teach Me to Talk uh, with Apraxia, which is one of my DVDs, and I think she's in Teach Me to Listen and Obey, too. And she's a little girl who was very, very, very apraxic, and so she had a motor speech disorder. But her activity level, whenever I could sense that it was just about, that I was about to lose her attention and she was about to lose control, I could just take her little face in my hands. And that was so calming for her. And again, that won't work for every kid, but just Think about what you can do. Think about what you can try. What has seemed to work for a particular child in the past or even another kid? Maybe you've had like, like that approach, like, you know, putting my hands on her face and I'm saying, Isabel, Isabel, and really try to speak to her in a calm, uh, whisper, uh, kind of sweeter voice than maybe I was using before. I haven't really, I can't really think of another kid that I've used that particular approach on since then, but you know what? I might meet a kid like that tomorrow (laughs) that that particular strategy would work for. So think about that. Think of what, you know, what's a different way that I can approach this problem? And sometimes you'll be able to pull a strategy kind of out of thin air that you used with a kid in the past that may um, work for a kid that you're seeing currently or for your own child. All right, we are at the end of this hour tantrums and meltdowns. I hope that I gave you some great information and taught you how to really differentiate between the two and how to look for those triggers and uh, apply the correct approach so that you can help the child that you're working with get back to a better place so that he can play with you and learn from you. All right, that's all for this show. We'll be back next week and I hope you'll join me. Have a great day. Bye-bye.